Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. I am very happy to be here. I am completely flying by the seat of my pants this week. This is a completely unscripted, unoutlined, unplanned conversation because I have reached out to my guest here. As you see, I am joined again by Melanie Tracek King. Hi, Melanie. Welcome back to my show. Hey, Chris, I'm so happy to be back. Um, we are just, yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm, I didn't really prep anything. I have been watching your work on social media since I had you on my show months ago and watching you educate the public at large about principles of critical thinking and rationality and basically what I like to refer to as frontal lobe activity, like the stuff that goes on up here that allows us to predict and process information and think about the consequences of our actions and think about planning into the future. That's kind of what I think about when I think about the frontal lobes. And your work, well, in short, you used to be a teacher, yeah? Yeah, um, I taught um, undergraduate non-major science at a community college. Right. And you found that work to be not as rewarding as it could be because it appeared that things were kind of not really being processed well by students in terms of thinking and clarifying and critical thinking. Is that right? Yeah, this is one of those times where you're just going to have to tell me to stop because once I get started, <laughs> it doesn't happen. Okay. <laughs> You've hit my, uh, this is like my reason for being. Uh-huh. Science is awesome. And like, I kept thinking, you know, undergraduate science, who doesn't want to be here? Like, look, folks, this is the study of why things are alive and how and like how they're related and how they're adapted and how you function and why you need to eat and breathe and drink water. And I was like, I kept looking at my students and they were just um, I science phobic is probably the best way to describe them. But honestly, um, honestly, I realized I think I was wasting their time. Because I realized they could look any of that stuff up in the future if they were actually curious. Um, And their world was based in science and technology, and I wasn't helping them understand it. And so instead of like, what do we know from science? I wanted to teach them how we knew that. And so that began my process. And now that is that is what I'm attempting to do is to teach students the skills and not the facts. Right. That's very obviously parallel to my goals and intentions in life when it comes to understanding ourselves, which is a, which is a, a really difficult, deep topic, <laughs> and understanding how we get along with others, another really deep, difficult topic, and how we think. The most difficult and complicated topic I can think of. And you have also grabbed this and embraced it because you were not finding satisfaction with what you were doing. And I, coming from a cult, was not satisfied <laughs> with my life, to put, it, to put it bluntly. How have you found, how long have you been working on this now of, of, okay, let's talk about how rather than what and promoting that and working in that area? How long now? 
Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I lose track of time. It's funny. I joke that I'm always lost in time and space, although it's not really a joke. I really am. And you've emailed me, so you know that to be true. <laughs> I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> apologies. No that. worries. No worries at all. But, um, <laughs> Uh, so I don't know. Um, I'm guessing in the like six, seven year range. And it started with, it was before the pandemic and I had approached the department and I said, um, you know, I think we should have a conversation about why we teach non-major science and what we want our students to get from that. And then evaluate the courses that we teach for them to see if they meet those objectives and if not, how we could improve. And so we went through an audit of our courses. I mean, to their credit, I know a lot of other um, educators who don't have this kind of freedom and support. So I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, I was teaching intro bio, which is the course, the introduction to biology, baby biology, as we call it for um, about 10 years at that point. It is the most commonly taught course, taken course for non-science majors across the country. And um, I convinced them that that course wasn't achieving our goals of science literacy. And so what I did in, is created a course. I mean, I begged and borrowed and stole from a bunch of different places and then put my own spin on it. Um, a course to teach skills, not facts. That's what I call um, the approach. So um, the, the textbook, again, you're going to have to just stop me. Um, the most commonly used textbook for that class, I'm not going to name names, but um, it's Again, this is a semester-long course for non-biology majors. <laughs> the course, uh, the textbook is approximately 800 pages. And the very first chapter has about four pages devoted to the process of science. Now, to their credit, during the throughout the textbook, there are various places where they talk about various experiments and so on. But to me, it still didn't actually answer the question of how we know most of this information. It was asking students to memorize a lot of facts instead of trying to think about how we learned those. Um, and so um, the course has gone through a few iterations at this point. And um, I, the trilogy of skills, I, I teach in a particular order, and I say this because it matters. Um, I've realized that I start with critical thinking, I move on to information literacy, and then I get to science literacy. So with um, critical thinking, I start with things like um, basic epistemology. How do we come to our beliefs? How do we know what we think we know? What is um, philosophical and scientific skepticism and how can we apply skepticism to our own thoughts and the claims that are made to us? Um, I go into um, the limits of our perception and our memory to inform us about the world. Mm -hmm. And um, by the way, throughout each of these, I'm using um, various forms of pseudoscience. So like witchcraft or ghosts or UFOs or um, a homeopathy, that kind of thing. So um, the limits of our perception and memory. And then um, the kinds of, I call it good thinking, but it's basically um, logical fallacies um, and the cognitive biases and heuristics that lead us astray. So I spend like the first probably 30, 35% of this semester on critical thinking, epistemology, and um, um, metacognition. And the reason that I found that that's most important is then if I want students to be able to evaluate information, to find good information, to evaluate a claim, um, they need to understand why they would fall for misinformation to begin with and their own biases that would lead us to search for certain types of information. Mm -hmm. And then I don't get to science and science literacy until after that. And now I found that um, it used to scare me that like, I don't get to science as a process and how we design experiments until like after the midterm. 
But I realized that if you don't start by helping students understand why we need science to begin with, then they'll never understand why the process of science um, is the what it is and why it's successful. And so um, I think there's a lot of back work that needs to be done that. And I realize I've said all of this, and I think you just asked me how long I've been doing this. And let's just say a while. <laughs> no, I, um, I, this is exactly what I wanted to get into. I am finding that it is difficult to educate people. And this was something that has been noted by others. Um, but it is very, very difficult to educate people who, A, don't see any need for it, the knowledge in the first place, or B, think they already know it. Um, both of those two things, like an extreme lack of any knowledge and no necessity to know it of any kind, will certainly get in the way. And, oh no, I've already filled this bucket. I already know everything you're telling me. I don't have any reason to know any of this. And labeling tends to get in the way of that, right? Because it's like, oh, science. Yeah, I took science. I know science. I know the scientific method. I learned it in sixth grade. Bugger off. This is all just review. And here we go again. And so there no and so either way you're dealing with people who aren't engaging. They're actually not involved in the process. It's just passing them by and maybe a few facts or factoids slip in, but otherwise they're not involved. This has been an experience I've had over the years in 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 trying to get information across to people. Have you run into these barriers? Oh, absolutely. Um and it's why um you know, Daniel Kahneman, um, who won a Nobel Prize in part for his work on, on cognitive biases. So in an interview, he was asked if there was one bias, if he could like wave a magic wand and rid the word of bias, what would it be? And he said it was overconfidence. And it's because once we're overconfident and we think we know something, then why would we need to learn more or why would we need to change our mind? And so overconfidence is really a problem. Um, yeah. So I tend to start actually with ways to convince students that they can be fooled and that they don't know as much as they think that they do. And those are really important lessons. So like, for example, one of the first things I start class with is um, uh, a basic lesson on um, how we believe, um, how we come to our beliefs and what does it mean to believe something versus know something. Uh, and I actually tell them a story about witches um, and I say, you know what, I, I'm just going to tell you a story and I want you to put your pens down and I want you to take any notes and just listen for the next 15 minutes. And then afterwards, we're going to talk about why I might have told you this um, story. And so I back up to um, like a, a history of witchcraft. And it's not extensive, of course, but it goes through um, like, you know, maybe uh, 1200s to 1600s in Europe. And the... Um, the kinds of things that witches were accused of, so like causing storms or um, causing birth defects or um, um, you know making somebody lose their money. Okay, so they were accused of a variety of things. What was their evidence for that? And so we would talk about how people came to be uh, accused and then the kinds of um, um, evidence that was used to convict them. And it was usually being accused or confessing. And you confessed because somebody tortured you. So let's talk about this. Here are the kinds of ways they would torture people who are accused of witchcraft, right? So let's talk about the Spanish boots where they put these um, uh, metal things with spikes on them and then they bang them around your, your legs. Or um, the they um, 
stretch people until they broke or they would put them on um, like a, what was it called? The Spanish donkey. And there was like a point up at the top and they'd put their legs on it and weights at their feet. And so they'd pull them down until they basically split. And look, that's terrible. It's absolutely atrocious. And I tell my students, I'm really sorry for doing this to you, but look, people actually went through this because people believe so strongly that they were causing these horrible events. Okay. So let's keep going. Let's talk about this. And then we finally get to a point where, okay, why were they why were they so convinced that witches were real and causing these things right they to their mind had evidence they believed really strongly so strongly that they were torturing and killing people and this is a safe belief to start with generally speaking because most of my students don't believe in witchcraft mm -hmm. um so mm -hmm. they can stand backwards from like a bird's eye view and go wow they really believed what might I believe strongly about that maybe I don't have good evidence for? Like, how would somebody else look into my head and the kinds of decisions that I was making? And that's the point, right? As I want them to question that, to not be so confident that you're right. And I actually end that then with an epistemology exercise. And I use it the rest of the semester, and I think it's a, a really effective way. Are you familiar with the straight epistemology um, group? I was going to ask you, since I had Anthony on just a couple of weeks ago. Yes, Anthony Magnavasco, brilliant. Awesome guy. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with him on a few things and hopefully more in the future. You love his work. So um, this it's Socratic questioning, right? And it, it's the basis of good thinking. So what I, I do is I ask students, okay, think of something that you think is true, well, whether it's witches or whatever it is. Um, how sure are you that's true? So I want them to put a value on it. Say, okay, from 0% to 100%. Now, remember what happened when those people were so convinced that witches were real, right? They were 100%. So we want to avoid that, right? So we're going to skip in from 100 to and 0 to even just a little bit. Okay. How would you test your belief? What would it take to convince you that you're wrong? So the wrong question is interesting. I don't want them to tell me why they're right. That's I want fine. them to come up with their own reasons for why they might be wrong. And it's just a great way to start questioning. Now, the reason I say all of that is because, yes, overconfidence is a problem. And um, we tend to believe really strong with our beliefs, especially things that we identify with strongly. But all of that, we're, we're in my... In these kinds of classes, like with science, I'm trying to get students to understand science as a way of knowing. Scientific knowledge is always tentative, but what do we mean by evidence? And what do we mean by a strongly supported scientific inclusion? And all that requires them to think about their own thinking. And I want them to practice those skills before I get to something that's potentially triggering. Right. Like I want them to practice with witches or with ghosts or with psychics or whatever it is before I get to climate change or vaccines or GMOs or something like that. Right. There's a there's a another barrier. Well, it's part of those barriers we were just talking about, but it seems to have an emotional component of some kind, which is what's led me into, you know, thinking about and talking about emotional needs an awful lot. I pair this with knowledge because I think that they're inseparable. I think our emotional commitment to ideas has, or at least it's a way of framing it in my mind that makes a lot of sense um, because of the way that cults will go around or religion or uh, other non-sciencey fields might try to gain certainty, gain that certainty in somebody, that, that plateau of, I know this is true, I no longer have to think about it. That's certainty as far as I can tell. 
right? It's like us. It's like, and, and I don't think it's a knowledge point because people can be absolutely certain of something that they have almost no information about whatsoever. It's not a matter of you have a volume of knowledge and that equates to certainty. It's a different factor. And it's interesting, in fact, how the more knowledge or information you gain on a thing as you study it and study it and study it, the more you realize in it, if you're sort of in an, uh, in an, if you have an unencumbered mind, if you're not tied to some belief system connected with all this knowledge, you realize how little you know and how little you're ever going to know and how there is all this knowledge that you're never going to be able to cram into your head all the way. And I speak from my experience with cults and sciencey stuff and even Scientology. I mean, there's a lot of Scientology. I don't know all of it, but I know a lot, right? So it doesn't seem to be a factor of volume of knowledge equals certainty. It seems to be something else. And so to me, that seems to be an emotional investment. What do you think? Okay, so to answer your question, actually, um, I thought maybe I could um, give you an experiment and see how you react to this. Because we're talking about um, certainty and um, how certainty isn't necessarily related to knowledge and what certainty and knowledge are. So um, there's I'm going to read a paragraph here. And what I want you to do is try to think about what the paragraph is referencing and how you feel in the process of trying to figure that out. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in fast. Too many people doing it the same thing can also cause problems. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. That's it? That's it. What do you think? I think you've read me a series of disrelated facts. I'm confused. Confused. Okay. I didn't get a coherent messaging out of that paragraph of information. I'm not sure what the point of that was. Yeah, fair. Okay. So um, this was actually in um, a paper at Bransford and Johnson from the early 70s. And um, it was, this actually relates to something. If I tell you what it's in reference to, the whole thing will likely fall into place very quickly. And so I can tell you and then read it again really quickly. And then afterwards, we can talk about how you feel the second time around compared to the first. Sure. So there's some framing device that will put all of this into place somehow or sort this somehow. You have no idea what relates all of the sentences together. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see them either. So I've heard them and I don't process information great. Just... When I only hear it, I, I, I like to see things better. It helps me process words better. But um, yeah, I'm very confused right now. Okay. Um, does confusion feel good? 
doesn't feel one way or the other because I'm not I'm not connected with it. I'm not invested in understanding it. It's just an interesting thing you've you've presented to me. So I I feel sort of huh. Okay, I I guess that's going to make sense somehow. (laughs) (laughs) You do know how this ends. Okay, so um, this is actually describing a kite. A kite. Is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. One needs lots of rooms. If there's no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. I guess I didn't have my mind in a place where I was thinking of what you were reading to me as a kind of riddle. So I was just sort of like, okay, here I am wide open, what you got? And then here come all these disconnected statements that don't seem related. And I didn't think about it as, oh, this is something I'm going to figure out or have to figure out or I have to tie all of these things together. So I guess missing that context, it just kind of didn't really mean anything to me. But I guess with the kite thing, you go, oh, yeah, sure, that and that and that and that and that and it all relates. Yeah, so their their basic idea is that um, certainty is a state of being. It, it's a, a feeling rather than a state of actual knowing. Um, you can feel like you know, but it sort of happens to you. And um, you may feel like you know without actually knowing. Hmm. But not knowing tends to feel uncomfortable. So that state of confusion hmm. and uncertainty tends to bother a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you can do something that helps things make sense, it's more like a, oh yeah, right? Mm-hmm. So it fits into place, I get it, and it feels better. Um, I do that exercise occasionally with students because I think it helps them understand that sense of, um, you can see it in their brains too when you read it. It's like they're trying to figure out the riddle, but they're not able to. And so to some of them, it's really frustrating. And to others, they just sort of, "Eh, whatever, I can't figure it out. But then even as soon as you say kite, they tend to stick to each of the words a little bit better and make sense of it a bit more. And then they go, oh yeah, okay, that that does make sense, right? Mm -hmm, Because they can mm -hmm. relate it to something they know and it feels better. Um, All this to say, when we talk about like certainty and knowing, um, studies have, generally shown, especially for science issues, that those who tend to feel that they know the most are actually amongst the least informed Right. in that they have false knowledge. They really don't understand. But that's a problem, right? Because if what we're trying to do is communicate science issues to people, then um, that feeling of certainty gets in the way of changing their mind. Now, the problem with that is a lot of those feelings of uncertainty, no, their feelings of certainty, but being misled have been purposeful attempts by people to mislead them. Mm-hmm. And so they're victims of disinformation that have appealed to their biases and their oftentimes like their tribal identities and loyalties. And um, that's a very hard connection to break. Well, exactly. I, th- I see it as 
um, falling into different buckets of necessity or, or requirement for a person as to why they would need to feel like they, they feel like they need to know this for some reason. And now they're being denied the knowledge or they get frustrated about it because they can't understand it. And there is a need to understand it either. I need to know this because I got to get a good grade. I need to know this because I don't want to look like an idiot amongst my peers. I need to know this because I want to look smart to impress that girl. I need to know this because my parents are going to get pissed at me if I don't pass this class because they're investing in my education. I need to know this. There's a million fill-in-the-blank reasons why a person could have an investment in or like, like I would consider that or call that or think about that as an emotional investment in needing to understand or know that. And therefore, the frustration enters in because that, I think, frustration is that feeling you get when you're stopped or barriered or hampered in some fashion. I want to get through this. And I think that my reaction to that was maybe a little different because I had no investment in, in knowing about that one way or the other. Except for the fact, perhaps, of not wanting to look like an idiot on my podcast. <laughs> but separating out that from an exercise of, oh, this is going to be something that's going to demonstrate something interesting. I want to be part of this. And so I'm not as worried about looking stupid as I am as, what is this about? So I'm not bothered at all by any of that, right? So um, I, I'm just sort of talking out loud right now, thinking out loud about why, you know, w- about my reaction to that paragraph you read and why I didn't necessarily get frustrated about it, but was still curious about it, you know, is because I didn't feel like I had any necessity to, if I don't, there's no consequence in not knowing. Right. And that's another one of those, like that paragraph um, is not, um, anything that would be emotionally or identity triggering to most people. Right. And that's sort of the power of that in terms of um, just a, a general experiment to see how uncertainty and uh, certainty might make you feel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Once we start to deal with issues that are emotional and that are identity based, then yeah. Um, one of the most important um, ways of knowing um I, I see this a lot. So I spend way too much time on social media. And um, I think to to some people, critical thinking means that you should be able to think critically about any issue. And the reality is that none of us are capable of doing that for everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Part of human part of our ability as humans to be so successful is that we can um we can specialize knowledge and share with each other. Look, I have absolutely no idea how to fly a plane. I think the internet is magic, right? There are things that I know nothing about. Um, Even within biology, my ability to read a paper on like mRNA vaccines is severely limited. My background is plant ecology. Right. So you give me something about like the diversity of plant communities over time as the frequency and intensity of prairie fires have decreased. That is my wheelhouse. The other stuff I don't have. Right. And so part of critical thinking is an awareness of your limitations mm-hmm. and an understanding of where trustworthy knowledge lies. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. there are systems of knowledge production that are more reliable than others. Science happens to be one of the major ones. Right. So if I want to know 
are um, mRNA vaccines safe and effective? I'm going to try to figure out who the experts in that area are and what their collective knowledge is, their, their consensus, as opposed to trying to figure it out myself, because that honestly is just an exercise in hubris. I do not have the capability of doing that. I know that. So I think a lot of people need to, to realize the critical thinking does mean an acknowledgement of your limitations and recognizing where the expertise lies. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree completely. In fact, that's one of the ways it, 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 it maybe that's one of the arguments or or basic ways I might approach talking about cult leaders or or predatory, you know, narcissistic type individuals who who try to you know take advantage of other people around them is is you're trying to find the common denominators to warn people about to look at and see here's 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 behavior that is symptomatic of predatory behavior or here's red flags that could warn you about the possibility that you're involving yourself or investing yourself with somebody who might not have your best interests at heart, but they sure look and sound an awful lot like they do. And they can be very convincing. And this can be very, very, very difficult to get across to people if they are confusing themselves with their emotions or life problems or issues that they feel very strongly they need to do something about or have a solution to or find a solution to you know and that's what that's what tends to appeal with a lot of the um bad groups and bad individuals that people get involved in is they think that this person or this group or this individual is going to solve some problem for them they can't solve and so okay well this guy looks like he has all the answers and he looks so certain about it that their certainty becomes the selling point rather than itself a red flag it becomes the point of oh that's why i need to do it and you try to educate people that's exactly the red flag you should be looking out for is somebody who says they got it all figured out is absolutely somebody who does not have it all figured out <laughs> So it's a little bit of backwards world sometimes in this, I think. What do you think about that? Yeah, I do. Um, the expert the expert is the one who will tell you what they don't know. Yeah. And um, where the, right? That's the person you're looking for. Actually, the con stands for confidence man, right? So you want to look out for the overconfidence. But yeah, it's humans that tends to be a shortcut. This person's on my team. They are telling me what I want to hear and look how sure they are. That's so they right. must be telling the truth. I actually have questions for you if I'm able to ask you some. Because oh, I am so curious. Yeah. Like, um, well, I have lots of questions, but I suppose the one that 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 comes to the surface is, is there something you could have told yourself that you would have listened to? Or what would the message have been and who would you have need to, needed to hear it from? In terms of uh, the my Scientology experience, in terms of getting yeah. involved in that? Well, I needed to hear it from my parents. And what I heard from my parents was do it. And they were my opinion or thought leaders, uh, especially my father. Um, 
kind of the strong silent type growing up. You know, my dad was not somebody I was having lots and lots of conversations with when I was growing up. I was, I was much more with my mom and I was always in my, my head was always in a book. So perhaps if Stephen King had written something about Scientology (laughs) or, uh, you know, some other prominent author that I had respected, right? Because there were quite a few. I read a lot when I was a kid, a lot, a lot. So if I had heard, really, there was so little about Scientology out there of a negative nature when I was growing up in the 80s, 90s. I, I, I just wasn't. So your parents you know. were in Scientology, am I to understand that correctly? I, so I grew up with it, yeah. My parents were pushing it on me and, um, and were since I was a little kid. I, they, I wasn't born in, but when I was about three or four, my folks got involved. So the key people who, whose opinions mattered to me growing up really were my parents. And, the, and my friends, and my friends were, eh, what's that? It's stupid, sounds stupid, looks stupid. But, you know, high school kids, like, what do you, they, they think that about everything, right? So, so I didn't take, I was never, ever, interesting, actually. I never really thought about it this way. But I was never going to take anybody else's opinions over my parents, which is interesting because I think a lot of people would have said the exact opposite, especially as teenagers. But that wasn't me. And, um, and while I rebelled against my parents, my rebelling was when I took the word of the staff at the Scientology church over my parents. So the time I did finally step up and go, screw you, mom and dad, I'm not going to do what you want me to do because they did not want me to join staff and work at the church. They just wanted me to do the services. So then they start recruiting me to be on staff and work at the church. And my parents are like, that's not a good idea. You really don't know what you're doing. You don't know how long of a commitment that is. And they kept telling me, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. Well, this was rubbing right up against the recruitment, which was, your awesome, incredible, powerful, spiritual of uh, 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 the person who's going to change conditions here. You're an amazing person. They're love bombing me. And love bombing, of course, is goosing up your ego to beyond all measure. And as a 17 year old, I needed a lot of love bombing because my ego was out the bottom. So these guys giving me all this love and admiration and attention, manipulative kindness, if you will. I, I couldn't get enough of it. I'd never had anybody do this to me before. And so, um, so this was the one point where I decided my parents didn't know what they were talking about. And, um, and I joined staff. All of that to say, had anyone in my life who mattered been really critical of Scientology in a way that made sense to me, I could have listened but there was there, no, nobody, nobody had anything intelligent to say about it in a negative way. Nobody knew what they were talking about, and I knew that. So anybody who approached me with criticism about Scientology, I could dismiss out of hand because I knew they didn't know what they were talking about. My parents did. 
so that was how the the how this how my thinking worked growing up and getting into it so i um, so i was never compelled to to think negatively or question it um and when i was and i did which happened once or twice i brought it up to my folks they were just really good at deflecting the question and dealing with it in such a way that I walked away going, wow, that was a stupid question. I really shouldn't have asked it. And I don't know that I want to do that again. <laughs> so that's kind of the experience of it. I don't know if that's at all what you were looking for, but that's kind of what, what it was like for me. Yeah. I mean, it is. Um, because I mean, the question is, how do we help people that, mm-hmm. that need to be helped and, and craft a message so that people might hear it. Yeah. Um, okay. So circling back, cause that was awesome. And I have so many additional questions, but one that comes to mind is, um, cause you said they were love bombing you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm assuming, and I, I'm curious what your take on this is mm-hmm. that the people who were doing that were themselves victims mm-hmm. that they, they weren't purposefully manipulating you, but they actually bought into the whole thing and they him, themselves had been manipulated and, um, and were doing what they thought was best. What do you all, think of that? all of the above, except let me let me correct one thing, which is they were completely aware of the fact that they were manipulating me. They were just completely okay with it because of all the other things you said. I became a staff member. I went into the same headspace they were in, which was we knew we were manipulating people because we knew they had to be manipulated for their own good because this was the answer and there are in the scientology belief set like in christianity where the devil is on your shoulder speaking and you know whispers into your ear in scientology there is this thing called the reactive mind and it's part of your mind and it purposefully is trying to do you in through its misunderstood machinations And so it will tell you, even vocally in your head, to not do things that you should do that are good for you, like Scientology. So we knew we were in a war or battle against people's reactive minds, and therefore we had to do things to them to get them free from that manipulation. So we were manipulating in a positive way where we would have said the reactive mind is manipulating in a negative way and that's the struggle and we have to win that fight. If that all makes sense. I mean, I, I, this is so outside of anything that I, I have heard. Um, oh, wow. Great. That, <laughs> so I'm glad like, I can give you some um, insight into this. This is good. That really is like, because um, there's always that where is the line between a cult and a religion mm-hmm. and, and so on. And so, um, so yeah, I'm, I, in my own head, I'm just trying to, to clarify all of this. So what you're saying is that people there really believed in the overall um, principles and uh, belief systems of Scientology. They just thought that to, um, to help other people, um, get the same benefits of having that belief system that they had to manipulate them to do so? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, it's called handling a person. They don't call they don't use the word manipulate in Scientology. That's not how they would describe it or think about it. But objectively speaking, that's exactly what's going on. What they use are terms like handle. You're going to handle the person. You're going to deal with their with their originations. You're going to handle their originations. In other words, the things that they say to you are originations. They are originating communication to you. And you're trained in Scientology. There are actual exercises and drills you do to learn how to handle originations. Take them in like somebody says something that's important to them. You listen. You understand. You acknowledge appropriately so they get that you get what they said. It's important. Acknowledge it. If you let it go, if, if somebody says something important to you that, they're, that they feel is important and you ignore it or don't deal with it, you're going to piss them off, right? You're going to lose them uh, because they're going to have all that attention on that thing they said that was important to them, right? So this is just one little tiny, tiny, tiny mechanism of Scientology, one of many hundreds, but it's an important one, right, is this handling originations. And so when you, so you're taught to do this in Scientology, right? Somebody says something to you that they feel is important. You listen, you understand, uh, you acknowledge, right? And that serves to deal with the origination. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure I really, you know, I, I'm, I'm sitting here in a sales cycle. I'm sitting here in a sales conversation. We use the word cycle in Scientology all the time. Pardon my if I've slipped back into that language when I'm talking about this stuff. Um, okay. Because you're in, a, you're in what's called a, a sales cycle or a reg cycle. The, the salespeople in Scientology are called registrars, not salespeople. There's no salespeople in Scientology. There's registrars. And yeah, I know, right? It, I'm telling you, the language is, is, it's really something. So you're in this thing and you say to the salesperson, well, I just don't have the money right now. I, I, I legit don't have the money. I want the product. I want the class. I want the course. I, I don't have it, right? So the salesperson is trained to say, I get it, man. I really get it. You don't have the money. Understood. Now let's figure out how to get it, right? And we go right back into it again. And here we are, and the guy's like, I don't have money. I know you don't. I really get that. Totally heard it. You do not have the money. Sometimes you'll even repeat it back to the person, right? That's fine. That is understood. Right now, in your bank account, there's a great big hole. There's nothing there. I get it. But you know what? You need this. So I'm not letting you leave this office until we figure this out. So let's start figuring it out. How can you get the money? And you're right back into it again. You see, that's what I mean by handling an origination in Scientology, right? Or, you know, here I am being recruited to be a staff member. Well, I have this other, I'm going to college right now. And I was, I was starting community college when I was 17 years old, right? So, well, I'm going to college. I've already paid for the books. I want to be a teacher, I totally get it, Chris. You want to be a teacher, man. That's awesome. You know what? You could be a teacher here. You can be a teacher here. And you could teach people things that are far more important than what you're going to teach them in an English class at college. Come on. We're, we're, you know, I, I know you want to be a teacher. We want you to be a teacher. 
here. <laughs> right? So again, it's handling that origination. It's, I definitely heard you. I definitely understand it. Now let's get back onto what we were talking about or doing. And that's a training technique that's used in Scientology. It's not, I, I don't make, you know, mean to make it out to be more nefarious than it is, but it's just, I said, one, one of hundreds of such things they teach you in Scientology. That's incredible. What yeah. I heard a lot of there was um, belonging and valuing. So m making someone feel that um, that they were not only a part of a community, but a valued part of the community. Oh, very much so. Very much so. That's what cults are all about is culture, community, and making you feel wanted and needed and a vital part of the community. The more necessary and important you are to the community, the more investment you're going to make in being part of that community because look at all the return on investment you're getting you know at least for emotionally needy people and i'm not too proud to admit i have been in a very emotionally needy person in my life right I, most people are at some point so it's not a, it's not even a, a a detraction from a person to say that so i guess um because I, I i so appreciate the work that you do um and um but but f so for i'm being again selfish in this um if you were to give me like the 30 second to a minute elevator pitch on what you've learned that can help the average person I i'm curious what that what that lesson would be who me right now as a you mean in scientology or right now for me like it, in my life now, now based on like what you've learned in your journey um like what i can take with me to help my students okay um the number one thing that comes to my mind when i think of the best piece of advice i've ever given anybody it's if you're faced with a an important decision in your life of some kind you're faced with a crossroads decision of some kind wait stop don't make that decision right now. Give yourself two or three or even four days. Let your emotions pass. Experience different emotions about the decision before you let yourself decide. That's my number one top of the list thing. It's super intensely practical. It's almost 100% correct. <laughs> Right? There are some times when maybe, you know, you do need to make a decision right this second, but those times are so few and far between compared to the number of times you're going to be told you need to make the decision right now. You're going to lose this opportunity. It's going to get past you, blah, 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 all the influence buttons that gets pushed. The fact of the matter is there are very few decisions in your life that you couldn't wait a couple days before you make it. And that is crucial to your future happiness because your emotional state determines most of the time really bad decision making in the moment. You give yourself some time to think about it and for your emotions to change and you'll look at it differently and that new perspective will either solidify that this is a good thing to do or show you why maybe you would have been acting rashly and in not, not such a good way. I don't know a better piece of advice for people to stay out of cults and relation, bad relationships than that particular piece of advice. But 
there's a lot more I could say about that. How's that? That makes yeah, that makes sense um, as to especially why the emotional tie to beliefs um, has been something that you've you've really wanted to explore. Yeah, yeah, that's hmm. been a real important one. The other the other real top of the list um, piece of information I try to share with people that I've said a lot is that the three most important words in life. I used to say in critical thinking. Now I just say the three most important words in life are I don't know. Learn oh, I them. was going to guess that. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. Learn <laughs> them, use them, get used to them, make a habit out of it because there's yeah. nothing wrong, nothing wrong with I don't know. There's nothing wrong at all with it. And there's everything wrong with saying, with not saying it when you really don't know because trumped up knowledge or made up knowledge or imaginary knowledge is 10 times worse than just not knowing at all. And, uh, and that'll also keep you out of a lot of hot water. <laughs> it's just say it when you know it, when you don't know it. Right. Uh, well, be honest. I, not only I don't know, but I was wrong. Um, and I, I think that both of those, um, and, and all of those permutations. So like, um, allowing ourselves the space to do that. But again, I say this because I spend way too much time on social media, but we need to allow other people the space to do that too. And to not like make fun of them or to be snarky or whatever when they do that, but to actually reward the process of saying, you know, I don't, I don't know. And, you know, I learned something. Thanks for changing my mind. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. So it's not just for us. It's for other people. Oh, absolutely. And I was wrong. Are the, is a, is, is so close of a second runner up to, I don't know. It's hard for me to decide actually. Um, but I still put, I don't know at the top, but I was wrong is right up there. Those are the, the next most important three words that, that you can say or know and be willing to say. Um, I, I, it really comes down to humility over pride or, or, or something like that, maybe, or over ego, um, intellectual honesty, emotional honesty. I mean, these are self-awareness. These, the, these are the qualities that I cherish and I try with all my work. If there are themes running through it, it's these things. It's, it's that it's, it's hubris and pride and ego that's going to get you in trouble 100% of the time. And or it is giving over to somebody else's ego, hubris and pride that's going to get you in trouble the rest of the time. And it's one of those two things that screws us up almost 100 percent of the time. Right. Is those two things. So I'm so sorry. No, I'm just saying I, that, that's what I try to get across to people. And I and I thank you for for kind of bluntly asking me, well, what is it? What is it? What are you trying to say to people? Right. Because it's like. Because these are the core values that my channel is all about and my life is all about. But it's hard for me sometimes to just bring it down to the simplicity of it because I get into all of the rarefied air of the philosophy and the thinking and the, the critical remarks. And you want to sound intelligent while you're talking about this stuff. But it really comes down to those simplicities. What humanity suffers from is a is an overabundance of ego and a and an underabundance of empathy or understanding. And empathy doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean you got to agree with people. It doesn't mean you have to go along with their bullshit. It means that you understand they got bullshit and you got bullshit. And guess what? 
life is bullshit. And a lot of it is getting slung around, trying to impress other people. They're trying to impress you. All the stuff that goes on in the social networks. You know, it's fine. Let's just acknowledge it for what it is and get along. But our egos just put us in this, like, hierarchical thing where I have to be superior somehow or I have to be part of a group that's superior somehow. And that just gets in our way 100% of the time and it and it drives me nuts and that's those are the oh. those are my themes oh it's brilliant it's so brilliant so back to Daniel Kahneman for a second because yeah um have you read Adam Grant no I've heard of but I don't think I've read him I mean let me look this one up again too who is oh, who is Adam but, Grant but, uh, so his latest book is um oh gosh what is it Adam Grant power of knowing what you don't know a revolutionary approach to success, originals, how to nonconformists move the world. Think again. Think again is my favorite. Yep. It's my favorite. Um, and he actually, uh, it's such a great read and an introductory book on thinking. And also for those of us who do this for a living, it's still awesome. Um, he quoted Daniel Kahneman in there, right? So who also said that overconfidence was the worst bias. So he, he mentioned about how he met Daniel Kahneman once and somebody had called him out and he was wrong about something. And he said that Kahneman almost had this like joy. And he said, what, you know, why are, why are you happy? Because like, well, because I was wrong, but I'm not now. Right. So if you can embrace the joy of being wrong, then you can be less wrong once you're right. Can you imagine that though? Embracing being wrong and not only just embracing it, like changing your mind, but being happy that you were wrong because now you're less wrong. Yeah. Holy crap. What a mind change that is. Yeah. And so I love that is absolutely mind blowing. Um, with my students, I do this really silly exercise. Um, so those questions I was telling you that I ask my students, um, one of them is how would you feel if you were wrong? And that gets to the emotion question, because if you would be somehow, um, angry or upset or, um, afraid, or if it would somehow like cause you emotional stress to be wrong, then that, that's a pretty good sign that you need to be skeptical about it. Um, and I asked them this question about, um, so how many species of elephant are there? <laughs> that's a good question i have no idea if not, do you have a guess i mean i uh, obviously my first thought is one and then i went no that's ridiculous there there's must be plenty of them i species of elephant um this is a completely uneducated and probably completely wrong answer but i will say 15 Okay, and this is the first time you've ever thought about this question, probably. Exactly. Yes. First time. <laughs> That's exactly right. So now we started to get into like what a species is and how do we define species as biologists? And there's a million different ways to do this. Yep. Um, so this is a great question too. So if I ask my students how many species of elephant are and they make them put a number on it. All right. Okay. Now how confident are you? So again, we proportion our confidence zero to hundred percent. What do you think? So you've said 15, how confident yeah, are you? Zero. I got no, I got no certainty on that at all. <laughs> None. <laughs> I am, okay, I am how would you feel if you were wrong? Willing, I'm completely willing to be completely wrong about that. Put it that way. Okay. You wouldn't care if you were wrong. Yeah, not at all. If I was right, see, I, 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 I am going out of my way right now to say if I'm right, it's a total accident. So how can I claim 
<laughs> you know, how can I claim any, any like uh, ego points for getting, for guessing it right? You know what I mean? I literally pulled a number out of nowhere. So. So um, the answer, by the way, is three. Three. As we currently define species, right? There okay. used to be the African and the Asian elephant, but we divided the Asian, uh, the African elephant into the forest and the savanna elephant. All right. So wow. three. Okay. Great, like biologist question to get into how we define species and why is there two instead of or three instead of two? And all that's to say, do you care that you were wrong? No. No. Right. Can you imagine having that level of, okay, I'll change my mind for like vaccines or climate change or evolution or GMOs or like you insert that, right? It's that level of, I don't know. I am not personally tied to this. I don't have an identity in the game here. It is not me that's wrong. It's totally separate from me. It is not part of my tribal identity. I'm not emotionally connected to it. Cool. I will update my beliefs and be aligned with the best available knowledge. That's what we're after for everything. Exactly. But that's such a hard thing to do, right? So that's what we're trying to do. That's right. That's exactly, you nailed it. That's exactly right. Um, thank you for describing it that way because that's, because um, the way I've been thinking about it is don't get invested in any idea 100%. Why are you doing that to yourself? You only set yourself up for failure by doing that, right? Because someone's because there is no such thing as 100% right in almost anything any human being is involved in. It just doesn't the world just isn't that way. That requires you to start thinking in black and white terms. Like if you take every lesson out of the cult niche world, this whole like how to avoid cults. If you go all of that, you reduce it all down to one thing, which I guess I could add to my list of, you know, top five things I'm trying to get across to people. It's the certainty is for the birds. Certainty is an illusion. Certainty is a goal that is a false goal. It's a, it's a, it's a wrong-headed goal. It's, it's the goal of an awful lot of people, lots and lots and lots of people. But it's a, it's a fake goal because you, you can't get there with a human mind. And, and, but, but more important, but you can think you can. But more importantly, all it does is close doors in your mind. Certainty is the door closer, not the door opener. It's the thing that makes it so that you close off knowledge and ideas to you because you don't need them. Because I already know about it already. I mean, going full circle back to that, right? It's like, that's what certainty is. It's, I don't need to know any more about this. I don't need to have any more input on it. This is how it is. It's my way or the highway kind of approach. That's the epitome of a cult. That's the epitome of cult thinking. That's at the very bottom of all of it is that. And having lived in that for decades and getting out of it and, and, and being away from it for 10 years, I can now feel like the antithesis, the opposite of that, the solution to that is don't let yourself commit. And that doesn't mean don't trust people or don't go in to a degree, but don't go all the way. Always be willing to question. Always be willing to say, maybe I, maybe this is not, maybe I am not, maybe this could be different than I think it is right now. 
If I might too, so just to lean into this elephant example for a second, because no one cares. Um, <laughs> look, I've given you an example three, right? Yeah. So that seems like, boom, there are three species of elephant. Okay. But the biologist in me who knows more about this particular topic would start to go in and say, well, what do we mean by species? How we define species. In this case, I'm using what's called the biological species concept, which is the ability to reproduce and make viable offspring, fertile offspring in the wild. But using different concepts, we might be able to come up with different answers. Also, the Asian elephant is pretty close to extinction. Um, the African elephant species are also in potential danger, but not as close as the Asian elephant. And also we're currently in the process of de-extinctioning, I just made that a verb, the um, the um, woolly mammoth, which would probably be another species of elephants. If we did that, then there would be four. Um, all this to say, like we think these things are set in stone. We think scientific knowledge is this body of facts, and even that kind of knowledge offers a certainty, but it does not. It is always more complicated than that. And you don't realize how complicated it is until you know more about it. But if you think if you think things are simple, it's probably because you don't know enough to recognize the complexity. It is always more complicated than you think it is. So yes, avoid the certainty and find those who know more about the topic. If you're really curious, listen to what it is that they have to say. The experts will tell you what we know. What is it based on? What don't we know? How would this knowledge change in the future? And all of that is much more than yes or no, true or false, black or white, three or two, all that. That's right. Exactly. Shades, of, gr shades of gray, right? Shades of gray. 50 shades of gray. And and the idea, I mean, this was this was something somebody else shared with me recently, which I really liked, this, this uh, analogy or concept of, well, you know, the farther out away you are from something in terms of study, research, science, right? The farther out you are from it, the more black and white it looks, the more plain and clear you can see the distinctions. But science, the process of, is zooming in and zooming in on the details, always zooming in. Let's look deeper. Let's look closer. What, what makes this thing? What what, how do we put it together? How do we take it apart? And when you zoom in on things, all the fuzziness starts appearing, all the gray starts showing up, right? And you see that the distinctions between these things are actually not any, not clear at all. And it's really as analogous as using a microscope, because when you use the microscope, you zoom in and you see all this crazy shit you didn't see before because you couldn't. It's kind of like that. That's a, I, I like that analogy for, for, the, for sort of perception versus reality a, a little bit. You know, I don't know. What do you think? And um, I always tell my students, if you've made a mistake, the microscope will just magnify your errors. Yeah. So you have to make sure that you've done as well as you can on each level before you zoom in. Because if you don't know what you're doing, you can get yourself into trouble. Big time. Big time. Well, how interesting. How interesting. I, I, uh, I want to keep talking to you, but I also want to wrap up because I know we're going to talk again. I, am, I feel at least that we will. Did you have, um, you mentioned about a million questions. I didn't want to leave you hanging on anything. Did you have any other questions you wanted to ask me? I mean, I have so many questions. You, you have escaped. You've escaped. Mm -hmm. um, a cult, right? And mm -hmm. it is no minor feat to um, take yourself out of um, a 
mind manipulation scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always trying to figure out what I can learn from people mm. to improve my own communication. So I know that's might be a huge picture thing, especially if something to ending on, if that's what you're after, because I do hope we talk again um, and pretty soon. But yeah, if you can, if you can give me something that might help me with my communication, I would really appreciate that. Sure. Wow. This is such a great conversation. I love talking with you about this stuff. You you bring challenging uh, things to, to 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 the to the conversation, which I love. Um, let me think here for a second, because I would it would be I feel I would feel presumptuous in trying to advise you about how to teach people things because you're actually a professional teacher and I was just playing at it in Scientology and doing the best I can at what I do on my channel in teaching people things. Um, But I'm trying to think in terms of communicating to people, um, I mean, I'm not really sure what to say, except I don't know a better way to communicate concepts or ideas to people except in ways that are real to them that they can relate to. I don't know, but that seems so obvious that I don't know that I'm helping at all in saying something like that. Um, One of the things that comes to my yeah. mind, and, and this this is just such an obvious thing that's probably not even worth mentioning, but I find a lot of um, skeptics, atheists, even science communicators tend to, um, tend to bring in a lot of snark um, and... Um, I guess I really worry about getting to the point where um, my communication comes across as mocking or belittling because that's never going to work. Um, But it's still really hard on social media to connect with people to the point where they might hear something, especially if they have initial um, um, like ideas about where they think I'm coming from, like some sort of preconceived uh, stereotype about where I'm coming from. so I don't know if that's helpful at all. No, it is because actually what that sends me is um, is relatability, of course. I try, and I'm told I'm good at this. I, I, I'm told, so this is why I say this out loud, is, um, is just being me, right, and communicating about the issues and things that I'm communicating about. I try to be very real, try to be very realistic um, and not put up any kind of like snarky barriers and stuff like that. I see people do that, this sort of dark sarcasm. And I, I, um, no dark sarcasm in the classroom. (laughs) Teachers leave those kids alone, right? Um, I, I do try to avoid that because it's not my nature, but also because I, that my, my biggest regret in trying to get information across to people was getting political. Uh, especially now, I did not foresee how divided and insanely ideologically, you know, committed people were going to become in this country in such a short period of time, um, because this was not the way it was 20, 30 years ago. It just isn't. There's, there's, it's so different now, and especially on social media. In real life, it doesn't. It, it feels a little like you're kind of walking on eggshells sometimes. Um, but on social media, you got to be super, super careful. And I, and of course, I teach via social media, uh, you know, so I have to be careful and mindful of this stuff. And I know I've ruined 
my ability to reach some people because of my political leanings and uh, opinions. And that was a real war for me. I don't know in looking back or looking at things now, I don't know that I regret it, but I acknowledge the fact of it, that I did that, that I said things out loud about Trump and about the left versus the right and stuff like that, that caused some people's heads to explode. And I've always felt like, God damn it, I wish I could have done that differently. But I don't know how I could have done that differently. It's, a confu- it's confusing to me, too. Um, because what that ran up against for me as a former cult member, as somebody who came out of an authoritarian system where I was told what to think and nobody really cares what you have to say different from that, so kindly shut up and sit down, right? I mean, that was basically the attitude in my cult and every cult out there. Weighing the relief and joy of not living my life that way. (laughs) You put a microphone in front of me and let me go, right? And those are the, and the things that I said were how I honestly felt and honestly see things. And I thought that they were demonstrative of principles I was trying to educate on, especially when it comes to culty stuff. But I, I'm rueful. I regret it only because I think I went over some people's heads or I might have communicated in such a way that it just was too partisan and it just pissed people off, you know? That's a lesson I'm still struggling with. I don't know that it's fully learned yet. I don't know that I've resolved it for myself yet as to was I right, was I wrong? Am I right in moving forward in trying to tone that down or should I be embracing it even more? Is is trying to take a middle road or a more moderate road losing me even more viewers or is it something I should be you know like it's this constant calculus that I'm doing trying to figure that out as a as a creator and human being and person who cares about the world Um, and I don't know if there's a lesson in there for you but it's something I thought I'd bring up because in trying to get these ideas across to people I think you've been navigating it better than I have in that you at least thought through a bunch of things to bring over with people that are not emotionally invested first <laughs> before you get into the into the deeper stuff. But I actually learned that lesson the hard way too, and I learned it in class. And part of it was because um, when I was teaching, so um, I was always trying to find the best kinds of examples for the concepts I was teaching. Yeah. And um, what I would find is the examples would age very quickly. And so, you know, like my students now, they're so young examples from five years ago, go way over their head. Like at best they're 20. And at the time they were 15 and like, nobody's paying attention to things when they're 15 and certainly not these kids. Right. And so, um, so I, I really struggled with that. And I've gone through a few iterations where now I've tried to take out not just the, not just current examples, but politically charged examples um, and trying to replace them with things that are more timeless. And um, I love humor because humor does a much better job of teaching the concepts. And I don't have to come across as, um, as taking a side. Now that's, 
what I found myself doing was a lot of trying to weigh one side. If I have show an, an example on one side, I have to show it on the other side. And there is objectively speaking, at least at this current moment, it hasn't always been true, but there is more misinformation on the right than there is on the left. It is shared more widely on the right than it is on the left. And it is believed more widely on the right than it is the left. Now, those things are objectively, it doesn't always hold true. Like 50 years ago, it was more on the left than it was the right. So I would find myself committing a bit of a false balance myself when mm. I was trying to balance things. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, laying off some of those examples, at least in the the broad teaching of these concepts in class and online, I, I do find that the the non-triggering, non-political examples, um, and especially those that use humor, are like the best kind of medicine to get to get it to go down a bit, and then we can build up from there. Yeah. Um, but I, I say uh, that knowing that there are some things that I'd really like to be able to address, and um, I don't feel like I can. I so hear you. I I I've actually been saying this out loud recently on my channel because it's been it's been brought home to me so clearly what an incredible tool humor can be for imparting knowledge and information in a non you know reactionary way. And I and I've all and I've been saying out loud um you know god I really wish I was funnier. <laughs> you know cuz cuz I can see that fact. And yet, I'm not really a very funny guy, right? And so, uh, it kind of sucks, right? It's like, ah, I wish I had a joke for that. Because there are so many things you want to get across. And and it was, um, and yet I'm in a field, I'm in an area where humor is difficult. It's not an easy, you know, yeah. I gotcha. Look, I'm in science, right? And I have found that farts are universally funny. <laughs> um i've got some penis humor that always plays um like oh i do a talk on um perineum sunning butt sunning oh yes 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 look i can teach people about pseudoscience using butt sunning every single day nobody is offended right you know you think it's funny and blah 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 like farts so um one of my favorite things um Thagoras, you know Thagoras, yep. like Thagorean theorem. Oh yeah. Thought that he was um so he thought that when you farted, you lost your soul. Right. What? Right. It's flipping hysterical. And like it turns out, like if you look into the history idea, it's not that far out there. But look, it's far out there. When you tell a bunch of 20-year-olds that, you know, this really smart dude thought when you farted, you lost your soul. Okay, now that you're done laughing, test that. Right. If right, and so then they start like, well, if you burp, do you lose a fart to your soul too? And like, well, dogs fart. Do dogs have souls? And then like, well, what's a soul? How do you measure a soul? Yes, now we're getting somewhere, right? So let's talk about what it means to be testable and falsifiable. And I did all of it with farts. Awesome. That's I know my awesome. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's really good. That is really good. And I and that's um yeah, that's where I'm not so great. I wish I was better at that. So I'm trying to figure that out. I um I mean I'm it's funny because I've been known for years on social media for my bad dad jokes. I'm horrible. I tell the worst dad jokes ever. I, I have books of them. Um, or the best. 
dad jokes. Oh, the best, the best, worst dad jokes, like the worst. So I have been doing that for years. I have no memory for it. I have to look them up every time I'm putting them out there. And uh, I can remember maybe three jokes I've been told in my entire life. Like I'm just horrible at it. Um, and yet in the moment I can make people laugh as much as anybody else, you know what I mean? But so it's, so it's, it's a funny, it, it's a funny thing, but it's true. It's so true. It's the best advice, uh, best piece of knowledge I've ever been given about educating people is educate them with humor and they will definitely remember it more. Um, but like I said, it's a, it's a difficult field to be humorous about. I'm talking about really awful stuff most of the time. And, um, and yeah, even, even professionals, I guess. There was the How to Become a Cult Leader documentary on Netflix right now. I don't know if you've seen that. I was going to ask you about that. Have you seen it? I just did, I just did a whole review of it this weekend. Uh, Should I my, watch it? Yeah, check it out. Check out my show. I did a, I did a live podcast, uh, which I very rarely do. Uh, for the 400th episode of this podcast that you're on right now. And, um, and I reviewed that show. And I went through the whole cult leader playbook that they present. Nobody, no, nobody else has done that much. I, I, I actually took all their advice and, and, and bits from it and put it all together. And, um, and they tried to use humor in putting that show together. They have Peter Dinklage doing a lot of dark sarcasm and snarky comments about cult leaders and stuff. And it doesn't play super well with a lot of people. Some yes, some no. It's actually running around 50, 60% on Rotten Tomatoes because of that exact reason. So it's interesting how some people will even accept humor in some areas and not in others and that kind of thing too. So it's been an interesting um, experience watching and, and critiquing and figuring out how best to try to get this across to people because it's... Uh, it's some of the most important lessons. The, the stuff you and I talk about is, is about as basic as you can get to, to navigating your way through life. And yet trying to convince people that they need those lessons is some of the hardest work you can do. That is so true. Um, if I've learned anything is that um, critical thinking is not enough. You have to want to think critically. That's right. Um, which is why in my class, at least I spend a lot of time on the, what's the harm of not thinking critically. And so like witches, for example, well, you could torture a woman to death. So there's that. Um, but there's lots of potential harms from not thinking critically. I, I don't want to waste my money, right? You could waste your money on something that's not um, not worth your money. So um, I, I totally see what you're saying because the converse is that I spend an awful lot of time trying to convince people about how to think critically so that they don't harm themselves either through money loss or bodily harm. And it would be much easier to get convince them to spend their money on worthless crap than yeah. it is to convince them not to. That's right. It's a really hard problem. Um, it is. If it was easy, I suppose we'd be winning this game. But, you know. I just thought of something that I'll share with you that I wonder if it might help. I wonder, I'm only wondering, I don't know if it would, but it seems it might. Making it personal, personal, making it, make, bringing it down to the individual is so important, I think, in communicating at least the, the stories of danger, stories of threat, because the barrier you deal with with so many people, so many people, are so sure that they would never fall for the kind of crap that other people fall for. 
They're so sure. Their ego is just like out of control on it. And it occurs to me, I'm thinking right now, like maybe if I presented a lesson like, okay, here's some outrageous cult situation or here's a bunch of people, you know, worshiping Satan around a table or here's, here's somebody holding these cans on an e-meter, right? And here's this like ridiculous picture. Is this person thinking critically? Everybody goes, no, absolutely not. That's not critical thinking. They would never end up there. I would never end up there because I would think my way critically out of such a situation before I even picked up those cans or picked up that ritualistic knife or whatever, right? And you think, and you're going, absolutely, man, you are way too smart for this stuff. Hey, why don't we check out this person in that picture? That is Sally Sue. Or that is Joe Green. They're an accountant. They went to this school. They grew up here. They were in a Christian household. They, like, you kind of lay out a little bit more of how this person is just like you. You know what I mean? And that, I don't know, I, I, this is just all, I'm just thinking out loud right now, but it's just that kind of like, like they got to connect with the material somehow. That's for yeah, sure. Even- Asking them, like, do you think they think they're thinking critically? Yeah, there you go, right? Like, here's, yeah, because you give them a history of the person. Like, here's the person. Here's how they got into it. And every step makes sense. It's breaking bad. It's like every single step you go, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense. And then they end up in a place that makes no sense at all. And you go, how did they get there? Well, every single step made sense. They were they, exactly, perfect. Were they thinking critically every step along the way? They thought so. (laughs) In my class, it's, I often joke that my students are captive for four months. Like they want a grade. So in order to get past me, they have to have a grade from it. Right. So for four months, they have to sit through the whole thing and see what happens online. I don't have that, um, the same kind of benefit. People come from different places, but, um, to be fair, I told you I started with witches, but the very first thing that I do after my syllabus is I fool the students and I fool them to convince them that they can be fooled. Mm -hmm. Cause if I just told them you can be fooled, yeah, sure. Whatever. Other people can be fooled, really. But me, I don't know. I'm too smart for that. That's right. So I fooled them, right? Was that fun? No. What? How did I do it? Well, I'll tell you how I did it. It's actually not that hard. I did it for free, and I did it for educational purposes. And I'm not going to tell you I won't do it again because I want you to think critically through these things, right? So, um, yeah, I think that's a really important lesson of convincing people how easily they are fooled. I mean, Feynman has that famous quote, right? The the first principle is you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. That's a hard lesson to internalize. Um, And then realizing we're talking about how other people can fall for the stupid stuff, but not me, right? Like I'm too smart for that. No, you can be fooled too. Oh, absolutely. Actually, I think actually I think you figured it out better. I think fooling them to start with and then showing them that they were fooled is absolutely the best foot to go on because it puts them on an uncertain footing, which is exactly where you want them. Right? Is uncertain. You you, the, the, you know, it's again, it's that certainty challenge. It's almost like a challenge. It's almost like this thing you have to overcome in people. We look at certainty as a feature, but it's really a bug. I mean, it's, it, it really is in the way it plays out in our life. I'm not saying it itself, that there's something wrong with, with feeling like you know something. But my God, where it can take you 
the worst possible places. Worst. You know, so I think I, I think, again, I think you're nailing it there with that. Yeah, just and then making it personal, connecting them with it. And then, of course, I love that bit. And I might fool you again. <laughs> That's what's really going to keep them on their toes. <laughs> like, oh, wait, is this for real? Like, ah. and that's actually that's the brilliant part. That's the brilliant part right there. I, I never realized I was that good of a liar until I was doing it in class. And I'm like, it turns out actually it really is easy to fool people yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> and i won't promise to not do it again because i might <laughs> i tell you well i'll tell you what let me ask let me let me throw this at you if i have any suggestion at all now um if you could get across to them like and i'm and i'm imagining that you do like like if you really get across to them that they really need to, that they really are on uncertain footing for the rest of the class as to what you're gonna be giving them. One, it'll force them to pay more attention, but two, it will put in place the exact thing I said earlier, never commit 100%. Because when people, when people put their education on, on autopilot, that means they're just taking in the information and they're not thinking about it, just factoids that I'm gonna have to repeat back. And they don't process it the same way. But if you force them to consider that every single thing you're telling them might be curved, might possibly not be true, and there's going to be consequences if you give it back to me as though it is, because it's not, that's going to keep them on their toes. But then at the very end of the class, you go, that's the habit you need to form with everything you're taking in for the rest of your life. I'm sorry. It's going to make you work a little harder, but actually, you're—I don't know—fifty percent likely, seventy-five percent likely to not get fooled again if you can if you take in if you process information that way. I—I I don't know what the percentage really would be. I'm just making those figures up, but you know, it seems like it would really help. Yeah, the the underlying message, I suppose, of the whole course and of, of all critical thinking in general is is skepticism. Yeah, it's it's um and, and to be clear, that doesn't mean not accepting things. It means demanding evidence, but proportioning your acceptance of a claim to the evidence available. It means being open to changing your mind with new evidence. It means claims with more evidence you accept more, but still have the opportunity to change your mind. And it means claims made without evidence have given you no reason to accept them. And here's the thing with skepticism. Um, we're more likely to fall for things when they confirm what we already think is true. Um, and when um, they trigger strong emotions, like you've said, and when um, when we hear them repeated. And so um, the hardest time to be skeptical is when we want something to be true or we don't want something to be true, right? But if you never stop to check, like if something scrolls across your news feed and you don't stop to check, then you're just gonna take that in and assume it's true. So your shield, the thing that you have that's protecting you from the outside world of chaos is your ability to be skeptical of your own thoughts and perceptions and what you're seeing from others. And using that power to check and to align your beliefs with the evidence. That's right. That's right. I'll throw out one last thing and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up for today, I think. Um, thank you very much. This has been a very fun conversation with you. Again, literally like with no agenda whatsoever, just went into this and 
here we are 90 minutes later. We've had a great talk. Um, I you, warned you I could talk forever. <laughs> it's fun, isn't it? Um, I, 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 that's why I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Um, you did me a favor, which I, which I really appreciated, actually. In your uh, numerous social media posts, and you post daily wonderful memes and, and clips of stuff, you guys need to subscribe to her Thinking is Power material on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook. I'm telling you guys, you need to check that stuff out. It's a daily dose of sanity for you. Um, and by sanity, I mean clear-headed thinking and rationality and skepticism. Speaking of... And I'm sure some of y'all in the audience were, were possibly taken in or have been thinking really hard about this. Uh, you had some comments about the recent UFO kerfuffles uh, being discussed in Congress. And my wife is even coming to me with this when it was happening. These hearings, the Senate, this testimony, this guy, he, why would he lie? Is all this information and all this stuff. And you very correctly pointed out some things about that. Would you like to share what you did on that? Because I was like, yep, perfect timing. Yeah, I mean, so we humans have this wonderful ability to, when we want to believe something, um, stories that we hear in ambiguous evidence, we tend to interpret as confirming that belief. And I, I mean, look, so there's like eight plus billion people on the planet and there's billions of smartphones. And in all of that, the best evidence that we have is like, of when I say UFOs, it look UFOs are unidentified flying objects or just things in the sky. We don't know what they are. So objectively, there are UFOs. The question is whether those are aliens. So with all of those smartphones and so on, the best that we have is like blurry videos and and people's accounts. And I don't even want to say that people are lying because someone could honestly believe what they say. Like someone, a pilot that um, sees something in the sky they can't under uh, they can't explain. None of us are above this kind of uh, biased thinking. The sky is a big place. How big is something? How far away is it? Is it moving or not? All of those things can fool us. And pilots and uh, military leaders, all of us are prone to the same things. And so I don't think that they're lying, but I do think that if we're proportioning the evidence to a claim and the claim being extraterrestrial visitors, if the best evidence that we have is hearsay and blurry videos, that's not sufficient evidence to establish the truth of that claim. So it doesn't mean that aliens haven't visited us. It means that we don't know. So back to that, we don't know, right? Would it be cool? Yes. Right. And I think I said in the video, as long as they don't want to kill us, it's cool that aliens are visiting us from another planet. Um, but we need better evidence than that. And that's OK. Just we don't know. Put a temporary pin in it. Say, you know, could be. That's right. And I often talk to you as a certified cat lover. How many millions of videos cat videos has the internet and smartphones given us. I am super grateful for that. And yet how many actual videos of like Bigfoot, Loch Ness monster, ghosts and aliens do we have? <laughs> right. Well, I think right. I think we have pretty irrefutable evidence that cats exist. 
And are awesome. And are awesome. Yes, that is correct. And uh, and yet Sasquatch, not so much. And that's the thing is when you have to step back and realize that there is a gradation, there is a level, there is a there is there are levels of evidence. There are there is good evidence and there's not so great evidence. And then there's just evidence that sucks. And the fact of the matter is, and as, as, and as much as this rubs us the wrong way, and even for me as somebody who relies on testimonials and anecdotes for a great deal of the information that I propagate about cults because it's personal experience-based. It's, it's, it's events that happen to people. And the only people who can tell us about them are the people who live them. And that's the evidence we get. Now, we try to bolster that and pump and, and reinforce that and show and deconstruct the writings and the lectures and, the, and, the, and we get videos of, of activities and stuff. And, and in other words, there's varying levels of evidence even in what I do. And so I face a little bit of, well, I could be opened up to challenge when I point this out. But I'm going to do it anyway because it's true. It just happens to be the fact that eyewitness testimonials and anecdotes are the worst evidence there is. Because people's perceptions and memories are so inherently flawed. And we can prove this. We prove it every day. I can show you, you know, uh, visual illusions. I can play for you auditory illusions or, or things that are going to fool you. They absolutely will. You will think A when it is B. A hundred percent of the time we can produce that effect because our perceptions are not perfect. And I would testimony is the single biggest cause of um, unwarranted um, uh, convictions. There we go. Wrong convictions. Right. Right. But a jury hears, I saw this person do that. And they think that is the best kind of evidence that there is without realizing our, yeah, we can easily be fooled. Easily, easily. And I, I take great joy in posting on social media whenever I'm shown these little visual cartoons or, or illusions or, or fool you kind of things with the colors or with the lines or with the shapes or with the forms. And because I like to point out to people how easy it is to do, right? Or how equivocal things can be, facts can be. You know, you take the, you take the, uh, the nine figure mm. drawn a certain way and you put it down, but the guy looking at it from the other direction is looking at a six. You're looking at a nine, he's looking at a six. Which one is it? It's both at the same time, and isn't that weird, right? So truth is not quite, and reality is not quite as solid as a lot of people really want it to be. And I only say all of this because evidence has levels to it. And if, and if all your eggs are in the anecdote basket only, you have a very weak case. And that's the fact of the matter, even though everybody thinks about it totally the opposite way. It really, it's really mind boggling. And I, I, but it's, but it is what it is. So we have to be aware of these things. And I thought that UFO thing was, was great. Cause once you, once I read your, your post, I was like, Oh yeah, the only evidence I have for this is some dude sitting there saying all of this. That's it. That's all we've got. 
doesn't mean and it anything. was a hearsay it wasn't yeah. even first-hand accounts it was like well so-and-so told me this and that they saw that and this is that well That's and again right. I, i'm not accusing anyone here of lying they could all be like telling the truth as they they think it is but they could all still be misled that's right that's right exactly so always got to be skeptical always 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 all right melanie thank you very much for your time today this was fun thank you back at you this was a lot of fun and until next time exactly. you're gonna have to shut me up that's what i'm saying <laughs> no, totally. I, get it. I get it well i don't want to because i enjoy hearing you talk so thanks for being my guest uh, continue doing your work and re tell everybody in the audience and I will put links in the description below here how do people find your work how do people access and share your work uh, with the world at large um, my uh, website is the central place where I organize everything. So it would be thinkingispower.com. Um, Facebook is my biggest social media platform. I try to post there most days. Um, and um, Instagram and Twitter, I am very much, uh, sorry, Instagram and TikTok. I'm very much trying to beef up those accounts. So I would appreciate some love on those. And also uh, YouTube. Excellent. And I do have a Twitter account. Um, feeling less and less sure about that one over time. Oh, what, what was that last one? I do have a, a an X account, I suppose, but I'm I'm feeling less and less certain about that platform over time. Oh God, you and me both. I I I I'm almost wondering whether it's days rather than weeks at this point. I it's such a ghost town there now. I'm like every time I log on to X, I, yeah. I I'm always like, what is going on here? There's nothing happening. And if that ban feature goes, I am just legit yeah, gone because that's the only thing that makes that platform doable. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay. Well, there we go. Find her, get behind that work, support what she's doing. It really is important and it's really cool. Uh, thinkingispower.com. All right, guys, with that, I will uh, wrap up the show for this week. We will see you next. Thanks for coming around. Bye-bye. <laughs>